how can you refuse it? Children of Moses, if I was president, I get lifted on Friday, assassinated on Saturday, buried on Sunday. Christopher Columbus didn't discover America. Tell them the truth, the truth, yeah. Tell them about Marcus Garvey. Tell the children the truth, yeah, the truth. Tell them about Martin Luther King. Tell them the truth, the truth. Tell them about JFK. I was president. I was president. I get elected on Friday. Assassinated on Saturday, buried on Sunday. Welcome back, my friends. Welcome back to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 25th day of November, 2007. It's been a long while since the last edition of the Corbett Report. So I'd like to welcome back all the old listeners to the Corbett Report and welcome any new listeners that might be tuning in for the first time. Perhaps a reintroduction of the program is in order. The Corbett Report is a weekly half-hour podcast dedicated to uncovering the hidden truths behind the headlines through an open-source investigation of the facts. Open-source investigation refers to a process of finding the facts through an examination of publicly available records from the Internet, from books, from magazines, from TV, from newspapers, etc. The Corbett Report is also a website operating at www.corbettreport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T report.com. Please go to the website to check out the articles which we write on an ongoing basis as well as finding the YouTube channel, where we post our YouTube videos, including a recent video which made the front page of PrisonPlanet.com regarding spreading Endgame in Calgary. This is the 21st episode of the Corbett Report podcast, and this episode is entitled Investigate 1122, which may be a rather enigmatic title, but perhaps this audio clip will help illuminate the significance of that number. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, Presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th president of the United States. Now, there are likely those of my listeners who believe that they know the general thrust of this episode already. They likely number among that vast majority of the population, 76% according to a CBS News poll from 1998, that believe that Lee Harvey Oswald did not indeed act alone to shoot President John F. Kennedy in the motorcade in Dealey Plaza in Dallas on November 22, 1963. They also probably rank among that large majority of the population, 77% according to the same poll, that believe we will never find the truth of the Kennedy assassination. 
Those listeners would be vindicated in their cynical assumptions if they were to rely on the reports of the mainstream media. A simple Google News search for JFK around this, the 44th anniversary of the JFK assassination, would turn up the usual crop of anniversary stories, citing Lee Harvey Oswald unproblematically as the single lone assassin of that day. There is indeed nothing new in any of the dozens of articles that I scoured online in the wake of this, the 44th anniversary of JFK's assassination. No mention of any new lead or break in the case. As rather stunning, insofar as the case was blown wide open this year. Earlier this year, St. John Hunt, the son of E. Howard Hunt, the famed CIA spy and assassin, released a deathbed audio confession which outlines his role in the operation to assassinate John F. Kennedy and points the finger all the way up the chain of command to Lyndon Baines Johnson, the next president of the USA. This is a stunning and perhaps miraculous revelation in this perhaps the most famous murder case in the history of the United States. To understand truly how groundbreaking and earth-shattering this news is, and how unbelievable the mainstream media's silence on this issue has been, we should first examine E. Howard Hunt. Everett Howard Hunt Jr. was a famed American CIA agent. He also wrote some best-selling novels, which were fictionalized accounts of his time in the CIA. Perhaps Hunt's most famous legacy is being part of the so-called White House plumbers in the Nixon administration, which orchestrated and carried out the Watergate burglary. Hunt was eventually convicted of burglary, conspiracy, and wiretapping in regards to that case, and served 33 months in prison for his role in the Watergate scandal. Hunt's earlier exploits in the CIA, however, were no less incredible. This is the man that helped devise Operation PB Success that overthrew Arbenz in Guatemala. This is a station chief in Mexico City in the 1950s, and also for a brief period in 1963, when he was alleged to have met Lee Harvey Oswald when he traveled to Mexico in that, the summer of that year. His connections to various power players in Washington and his connection to the Kennedy assassination is long and complex, but it distills down to a few basic facts. In the immediate aftermath of the assassination, Dallas police arrested three tramps in a railroad gondola behind a grassy knoll and picket fence. These tramps were photographed, and E. Howard Hunt is unquestionably one of the tramps in the photograph, another one being Frank Sturgis, one of Hunt's accomplices, and another known CIA operative. Confirmation of Hunt's presence in Dallas that day would not only put a lie to the years of denials which Hunt issued in relation to his involvement in the assassination, but also put to rest years of speculation regarding Hunt's role in the assassination, perhaps made most famous by Spotlight magazine, which published an article in the 1970s claiming that a CIA memo had claimed it would be problematic that E. Howard Hunt was in Dallas that day and the CIA should figure out how to explain his presence in Dallas. Of course, Hunt has long denied that he was in Dallas that day, having claimed that he was at home in Washington. But with the release of this astounding audio confession earlier this year, we can now ascertain that not only was E. Howard Hunt in Dallas on that fateful day, 
but that he was also a bench warmer, as he calls it, on the plot to assassinate the president. A plot that he fingers went all the way up to Lyndon Baines Johnson, of course, the next president of the United States of America. Without further ado, let's turn to the clip of that audio confession from E. Howard Hunt regarding the assassination of President Kennedy. I heard from Frank that uh, LBJ had uh, designated uh, Cord Meyer Jr. to uh, undertake a larger organization while keeping it totally secret. Cord Meyer himself was a uh, rather favored uh, member of the uh, Eastern aristocracy. He uh, was a graduate of Yale University and uh, uh, had uh, joined the Marine Corps during the war and lost an eye in the Pacific fighting. I think that uh, LBJ settled on uh, Meyer as, a, uh, as an opportunist, parent like himself, a parent, and a man who had very little left to him in life ever since JFK had... Uh, had taken Cord's wife as one of his uh, mistresses. I would uh, suggest that uh, Cord Meyer welcomed the approach from LBJ, who was, after all, only the vice president at that time. And of course, could not uh, number Cord Meyer among uh, JFK's admirers. Quite the contrary. As for Dave Phillips, I knew him uh, pretty well at one time. Uh, he worked for me uh, during the uh, Guatemala project. He had made himself useful to the agency uh, in Santiago, Chile, where he was uh, an American businessman. In any case, his uh, actions, whatever they were, came to the attention of the Santiago station chief. And uh, when his uh, resume became uh, uh, known to uh, people in the Western Hemisphere Division. He was uh, brought in uh, to uh, work on uh, Guatemalan operations. Spurs and Morales and uh, people of that uh, ilk stayed in uh, apartment houses uh, during the preparations for uh, the big event. Uh, their addresses were very uh, subject to change, so that uh, where a fellow like uh, Morales had been one day, you're not necessarily associated with that same address the following day. In short, it was a very mobile uh, uh, experience. Let me point out at this point that if I had wanted to uh, fictionalize uh, what went on in Miami and elsewhere during the run-up for the big event, I would have done so. But uh, I don't want any uh, unreality to tinge this particular uh, story or the information, I should say. I was a bench warmer on it, and uh, I had a reputation for honesty I think it's essential to refocus on what this information that I've been providing you 
uh, and you alone, by the way, consists of what is important in the story is that we've backtracked the chain of command up uh, through uh, up through Cordmeyer and laying the uh, the uh, doings at the doorstep of LBJ. He, in my opinion, had a an almost maniacal urge to become president. He regarded uh, JFK as a as he was, in fact, an obstacle to achieving that. Uh, he could have waited for JFK to finish out his term and then undoubtedly a second term. So that would have put the LBJ at the head of a long list of people who were waiting for some change in the executive branch. And there we have it, straight from the agent's mouth. One of the men running the plot to assassinate the president, finally admitting in a deathbed confession that he was part of the plot, and that the plot ran at least all the way up to LBJ. And what do we hear about this in the mainstream media? Complete, deafening silence. The only mainstream news source to have covered this story so far is Rolling Stone magazine, which ran a cover article about this astounding revelation earlier this year. But look for this information in the New York Times, the LA Times, the Boston Globe, anywhere that you would expect to find some of this astounding revelation, and you will find nothing. Total silence. Why is that? That the mainstream media covers up these types of astounding revelations on an ongoing basis is perhaps nothing new to listeners of the Corbett Report. But sometimes even I need to be reminded of this utter silence and what it really means about the state of our media. What's particularly interesting in this case is that there are some people in the mainstream media, probably people you would least likely expect, who were once questioning the official account of what happened on November 22, 1963. Let's turn to a quick audio clip from a report from an extremely unlikely source for someone questioning the Warren Commission. Bill O'Reilly of Fox News, who at the time was trying to make a journalistic name for himself and was reporting for Inside Edition. The Select Committee on Assassinations will at this time come to order. The most damaging sealed documents of the House Select Committee on Assassinations accuse high-ranking officials of the Central Intelligence Agency of lying to the people of the United States about Lee Harvey Oswald. House investigators believe this man, David Atlee Phillips, met with Oswald two months before the assassination. Phillips was the CIA's chief of Western Hemisphere operations and was in charge, among other things, of plots against Fidel Castro. According to the secret reports, Antonio Viciana, a leader of anti-Castro Cubans directed by the CIA, saw Oswald talking to a senior CIA agent he knew by the cover name Maurice Bishop. Viciana provided enough information for House investigators to compile this sketch of the agent who met Oswald. Could it have been Phillips? Investigators believe it was. Phillips denied under oath that he knew Oswald, but House investigators did not believe him and wanted him charged with perjury. The government declined to prosecute, leaving investigators furious. The director of the CIA in 1963 was John McCone. He caused a sensation among committee staffers when he admitted there was an agent using the cover name Bishop. 
but a secret memo reveals he was allowed to reverse his testimony. A CIA lawyer wrote the committee, I should inform you that he had been in error. In summary, Mr. McCone withdraws his statements on this point. The man who fingered Maurice Bishop, Antonio Viciana, was shot in the head soon after testifying, but survived. Frightened, he will no longer talk about the case, which we caught up with him in Florida. They wounded me in the, in the head. They're trying to kill me. You know why? Why would anybody? I don't know. Perhaps the FBI knows. The FBI knows. Did they tell you? No. Actually, actually. David Adley Phillips died of cancer in 1988. Investigators believe Phillips was angry at JFK for botching the Cuban Bay of Pigs operation. Did you kill the president? The second explosive revelation in the sealed documents also links the CIA directly to Oswald. While living in Dallas, Oswald was befriended by Russian-born George de Morenchild. Investigators determined he was a contract agent for the CIA in Central America and the Caribbean. In 1977, moments before he was to be interviewed by House investigators, DeMorenchil blew his brains out with a 20-gauge shotgun. House investigators believe he was a crucial link between the CIA and Lee Harvey Oswald. There is no question that the sealed JFK files are extremely embarrassing for the CIA. House investigators have told Inside Edition that the agency did not fully cooperate in their investigation and that the CIA had final say in the report that the House Assassinations Committee made public. Thus, the public report makes no mention of the CIA's links with Lee Harvey Oswald. But the secret documents are another story. One interesting sidelight, the movie JFK was partially based on Jim Garrison's investigation in New Orleans. Well, House investigators uncovered evidence that the CIA planted nine agents inside the Garrison investigation to feed him false information and to report back to Langley on what Garrison was finding out. Again, compare that report from Bill O'Reilly of Inside Edition of 20 years ago to the reports that we hear from Bill O'Reilly of Fox News today. And you get a sense of just how far the controlled corporate media has degraded in the preceding couple of decades. The evidence of CIA implication in the cover-up of the assassination, which O'Reilly points to in that report, is by this point old news. Again, a stunning revelation that was only recently brought to light is that Gerald Ford's new autobiography published posthumously indicates that Gerald Ford, the former president of the United States, knew firsthand of information regarding the JFK assassination that the CIA had destroyed. Again, these revelations are astounding, amazing, the type of information that people had long since given up the hope of ever seeing the, see the light of day in their lifetime. It's coming out right now in our day and age, and unless you are glued to the media and scouring for this information, you probably will not find it. Taking this raw information and sorting out the true story of the events of that day thus becomes the arduous task of the researchers of our present day. The limited knowledge of the Senate Select Committee on Assassinations, or even the limited knowledge of an insider like E. Howard Hunt, necessarily means that the entire picture has not seen the light of day. So it is at this point that we turn to an excellent documentary entitled JFK 2, which was put out earlier in 2006 
This documentary is available for purchase online. Of course, it can also be found on Google Video and features a rather distinctive animated photograph style of presentation. But the information in this documentary is second to none. The research is astounding, and the conclusions are no less astounding. It is highly recommended for anyone who is interested in the truth of what happened on November 22, 1963. At this point, we'll turn to a clip from that documentary, which shows that LBJ was not the tip of the pyramid of the JFK assassination plot. In fact, all indications of involvement in the plot point to a very familiar name. Let's turn now to the audio clip. This barely readable piece of paper was declassified by the FBI in 1977 and released. It's a memo written by J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI. The title is Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It is about a meeting that took place between the FBI and the CIA the day after the assassination. The memo names George Bush as one of two CIA officials sent to get Hoover's report on the activities of the CIA's misguided anti-Castro Cubans. The memo was a scandal when it was made public in 1988 because it says that George Bush was in the CIA in 1963. It says that Bush lied when he told the public that he had no CIA experience before becoming director in 1974. It means he was in the CIA when he ran for Senate and lost in 1964, and when he ran for Senate and lost in 1970. And it means that he was in the CIA when Nixon brought him into the White House, trailing E. Howard Hunt behind him. In 1992, Bush was first confronted with this memo, and he had a chance to respond to it. Oh, shit. Bush claimed that the memo must be talking about another George Bush working at CIA, because it couldn't be talking about him, Wasn't because there? he had never been in the CIA. Never oh, been there. except for that time in 1974 when he was director of CIA. Oh, shit. Should we believe him? Let's make clear what we're talking about here. The George Bush of the memo who received the report on misguided Cubans, was clearly a supervisor of the CIA's misguided Cuban operations. We've seen both the CIA and their misguided Cubans implicated in the Kennedy assassination. This is some important stuff, eh? The George Bush of this memo is directly implicated in the assassination. It makes a huge difference whether this was him or some other George Bush. But how can we know? Well, come on, it's basic stuff. Is there any corroboration? Is there any other evidence besides this memo to show whether Bush was in the CIA at this time, or that shows whether Bush was supervising anti-Castro Cubans? We'll start by looking at Bush's connections. A quick look at Alan Dulles may help us understand the importance of connections. Dulles worked closely with Nazi bankers during World War II. That somehow qualified him to become the director of the newly formed Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. He was the architect of the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba. When he launched the invasion against Kennedy's orders, of course Kennedy fired him. So thinking people were shocked when he was virtually put in charge of the investigation, the Warren Commission, because he was the prime suspect as the leader of the assassins. But he had been fired. He was no longer the head of the CIA. How could he lead anything? Because the organizing principle in secret work is that you trust only the people you know personally and are connected to personally. The CIA is not so much an organization as a community. 
so that it hardly mattered that Kennedy fired Dulles. The men loyal to Dulles, who knew him and trusted in him, continued to trust and obey. In fact, Dulles stood at the center of the group of men who not only had the motive, but the ability to steal the body from the Dallas coroner, to steal it from the Secret Service, mutilate it, and return it, all without attracting public attention. Was George Bush a member of this community in 1963, as the Hoover memo says? Well, did he have close personal ties with these people? Let's examine that question. Certainly one of Bush's main ties to this community is the connection between his father and Alan Dulles. In the 1930s and 1940s, Alan Dulles was a close business associate on a first-name basis with both Prescott Bush and Averill Harriman. Before that, during World War I, before there was a CIA, Prescott worked for Army Intelligence, a forerunner and parallel organization to the CIA. Through his closest associate, Averill Harriman, Prescott is also tied to Richard Bissell, the CIA Director of Operations for the Bay of Pigs, who was fired by Kennedy. Bissell, like Hunt, also worked for Averill Harriman for ten years before joining the CIA. Prescott also partnered with William J. Casey, director of CIA under Reagan, in 1962. At the time, Kennedy was moving to dismantle the CIA. Prescott and Casey together founded the National Strategy Information Center to directly fight against Kennedy's efforts. But at the center of Bush's connections in the world of secret murder and filth is his membership in the secret society of Skull and Bones, a secret Yale fraternity famous for its celebration of racism, robbery, and death. This tomb is where they meet twice a week to engage in black rituals using skulls, candles, and ceremonial group masturbation. It's supposed to be kind of a gay group marriage thing. Brothers under the skin is how the Bonesmen describe their relationship. Their graduates are a powerful bunch of devils. Averill Harriman and Prescott Bush were Bonesmen. George Herbert Walker Bush was a Bonesman, and so was his uncle, George Herbert Walker. Robert Lovett, architect of the CIA, was a Bonesman, selected for membership by Prescott himself. F. Truby Davison was also selected for membership in Skull and Bones in 1918, the year Prescott did the picking. Davison was in charge of hiring for the CIA in 1948, the year George Herbert Walker Bush left Yale in search of a job. Davison had a son, Endicott Peabody Davison. Endicott was skull and bones, class of 48, making him brother under the skin with George Herbert Walker Bush. He's also the Bush family lawyer. As both former president and director of CIA, old Beelzebub himself, George Herbert Walker Bush is the most distinguished of modern bonesmen. But the question is whether he was in the CIA in 1963, as Hoover says. In a world where personal connection is everything, no one could possibly have a closer relationship to the head of hiring for CIA than George Herbert Walker Bush. Bush's first job on leaving Skull and Bones was to work for Neil Mallon, brother under the skin to Prescott, class of 18. In a letter to White House aide C.D. Jackson, dated March 26, 1953, the now Senator Prescott Bush described Neil Mallon as a very old and dear friend. I might say that Neil Mallon is well known to Alan Dulles and has tried to be helpful to him in the CIA, especially in the procurement of individuals to serve in that important agency. So George went directly from Skull and Bones, 
he went directly from being a brother under the skin to the son of the director of hiring for CIA to working for a recruiter for the CIA. You could not ask for more powerful evidence that Bush was in the CIA when Hoover said he was. But you can get it. This letter records a meeting between Prescott Bush, George's CIA promoting father, Neil Mallon, the CIA recruiter, and Alan Dulles, the head of CIA, to discuss, quote, our pilot project in the Caribbean, unquote. In 1959, the year that Alan Dulles began planning the CIA invasion of Cuba at the Bay of Pigs, Bush began his independent business career as the sole owner of Zapata Offshore Oil. Zapata Offshore's oil rigs just happened to be positioned right in the middle of CIA operations in the area 30 miles north of Cuba near Quezal, an island used by the CIA for supplying the various terrorist raids of Operation 40, Operation Mongoose, Alpha 66, and the rest of these murders against Cuba. The assassins of Operation 40 were supervised by E. Howard Hunt. Hunt was also a supervisor of the Bay of Pigs invasion. The secret code name for the Bay of Pigs invasion was Operation Zapata. Operation Zapata? Zapata Offshore? Now you could fairly ask what kind of an idiot would give a secret operation a secret code name and name it after his own company that was operating in the area. What kind of idiot? George Bush, that's what kind of idiot. In World War II, Bush named his plane after his wife, the Barbara II. When this plane was shot down, what do you suppose he named his next plane? Did you guess it? The Barbara III. While the CIA was preparing for the Bay of Pigs invasion, the CIA ordered a large ship from the Navy to carry tanks and guns and men to the Bay of Pigs invasion. But no one was supposed to know this was a U.S. Navy ship. The world was supposed to believe that these were just private citizens of Cuba, so it was necessary to disguise the ship and to change the name. The name was changed to the Barbara. Now, this is not a big deal. It's a small deal. But it's there. Bush has a habit of naming things in his military career after things in his personal life. He named two planes after his wife, and one of the three CIA ships at the Bay of Pigs was renamed the Barbara. It's a small piece that just happens to fit perfectly with the bigger picture of Bush as a CIA officer working with anti-Castro Cuban terrorists. This same habit of naming things in his military career after things in his personal life also connects Bush's oil company, Zapata Offshore, to Operation Zapata and to the anti-Castro Cuban terrorists. But again, let's not overemphasize this name stuff. Finding the name of Bush's wife on a Bay of Pigs supply ship or finding the code name of the Bay of Pigs invasion on his oil company is a small but clear detail of this much bigger picture. The big picture shows us that at the same time that Hunt moved from working inside Harriman's office to go to the CIA where he supervised at the Bay of Pigs invasion, at the same time that Richard Bissell moved from working inside Harriman's office to go to work for the CIA where he became the director of planning for the Bay of Pigs operation, at the very same time, the oldest son of Harriman's closest associate went to work in the exact same outdoor office where Hunt and Bissell were now operating. 
Hoover's memo names Bush as a CIA supervisor of the Bay of Pigs invaders, the anti-Castro Cubans. There can be no reasonable doubt about this connection. George Bush was working for the CIA, assisting in their operations at the Bay of Pigs, working for Bissell, working with Hunt, working with Sturgis, supervising the CIA's misguided anti-Castro Cubans. His supervision of Hunt and the others at the Bay of Pigs is a key piece of evidence linking him to the assassination, but it is not Bush's only connection to Hunt and the other suspects. After Bush got beaten up, losing two elections for Senate, Nixon brought his sorry butt into the White House, trailing E. Howard Hunt behind him. Haldeman says no one could figure out who brought Hunt into the White House, but it isn't that hard to figure out, because not only did Hunt and Bush come to work for Nixon at exactly the same time, but no one in the White House had any connections to CIA operations. No one had any connections, while Bush, on the other hand, was directly involved in the same CIA operations in the same area at the same time that Hunt was. It's starting to get ridiculous. Hunt's mother is not so thoroughly connected to Hunt. And now let's look at Bush's role in the cover-up. In 1975, the Senate Select Committee on Assassinations began to investigate the CIA's role in the Kennedy assassination. The committee uncovered the CIA internal memo that Spotlight Magazine wrote about, which says that Hunt was in Dallas on the day of the assassination. William Colby was director of the CIA at the time. Oh, yeah. Hunt was there all right. He and Bush were in charge of the shooters. And he was cooperating with the committee. But they weren't really in charge. They were just taking orders and supplied the committee with the Hunt memo. From civilians, like Alan Dulles and the Rockefellers. Uh, maybe I Colby was suddenly now. fired. And, out of the blue, supposedly with no CIA experience... George Bush Sr. was appointed to take over as head of CIA. Why? What qualified Bush for this job? One thing. Bush could be relied upon better than Colby to cover up the facts of JFK's murder because Bush knew that the trail led straight to him. He had to cover it up, and he did. He ended CIA cooperation with the committee and effectively shut down the investigation. The fact that Bush played this leading role in the cover-up connects him to every person threatened by this investigation. So, there's a ton of evidence that connects George Bush to John Kennedy's killers. But now we'll look at a couple of pieces of strange evidence that while they don't connect Bush to the killers, do connect him to the assassination in ways that can only be described as... weird. This is George de Morenschild. He was a wealthy, Russian-born Texas oil man who liked to party with minimum wage clerks. He helped get Oswald a job at the Dallas School Book Depository. Of course, he was CIA. The night before he was to be questioned by the Senate Committee on Assassinations, his head was blown off with a shotgun. In his pocket at the time was an address book, and in his address book was the entry... Bush, George H.W., Poppy, his family nickname, 1412 West Ohio, also Sapata Petroleum, Midland. By itself, this proves nothing. Taken in context, however, it is one more amazingly direct link between Bush and the assassination. But that's not all. FBI documents record that on the day of the assassination, at 1.45 p.m., 
Mr. George H. W. Bush telephonically furnished the following, that he recalled hearing in recent weeks, the day and source unknown, that one James Parrott had been talking of killing the president when he comes to Houston. Now what the hell do you make of that? Just crazy! When questioned about the FBI documents, Bush says he does not recall making the phone call. His failure to recall such dramatic events puts him into a unique club. Like Nixon and Hunt, he can't seem to remember the events of November 22, 1963. It seems that this guy was everywhere, connected to every single aspect of the assassination, planning, execution, and cover-up. No one, not Hunt, not Connolly, not Nixon, no one on the face of the earth could possibly have better credentials as a suspect than George Herbert Walker Bush. The scale in this case is tipped past a certain critical point. The probability that he was involved is genuinely beyond a reasonable doubt. The Hoover memo is not circumstantial evidence. It is direct eyewitness smoking gun evidence from the most influential figure in the history of American law enforcement. The rest of the evidence merely provides a context for this memo that makes it impossible to reasonably believe that the former president was not involved in the murder of John Kennedy. If we could present this evidence to an unbiased jury in Texas, okay. they would certainly give him the death penalty. Ow! Ooh! Ooch! Oh! It should be noted that the audio in that clip, which might sound strange in audio form alone, is accompanied in the documentary by video, cartoon footage in fact, of George H.W. Bush being put to death by the electric chair. Now the information in that documentary again is astounding, perhaps unbelievable, and for those who are still a little bit incredulous, and uh, to you I salute you, you should never believe what you hear, you should always research it for yourself. I invite you to research this information for yourself by checking out that documentary and looking for corroborating evidence for yourself. For those who are astounded by what they've heard today and find it almost overwhelming, I urge you to conduct just one last thought experiment for me. Please type in the search term JFK into the Google News search engine and see what type of new mainstream media coverage there is surrounding this 44th anniversary of the JFK assassination. If you can find so much as a single mention of any of the information presented in today's episode, I salute you. I couldn't find any of it for myself. Again, the silence is in and of itself instructive about the age that we're living in. This information is getting out and seeping down into the general consciousness of the public, but doing so very slowly. You might have noticed recently that die-hard neocon supporter and warmongerer Bruce Willis, perhaps the most ardent neocon supporter in Hollywood, has not been so ardent in his support of the neocon madmen anymore. And some indication of why that is may have come from this New York Post article of May 5th, 2007. It reads in part, quote, Add Bruce Willis to those who don't believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone in assassinating JFK. They still haven't caught the guy that killed President Kennedy, the tough guy star tells June's Vanity Fair. I'll get killed for saying this, but I'm pretty sure those guys are still in power in some form. The entire government of the United States was co-opted. But, he adds, I don't think my opinion means Jack Bleep, because I'm an actor. Why do actors think their opinions mean more because they act? End quote. 
Now, despite his self-effacing little comment at the end there, what he says is extremely important. Even die-hard neocon madmen supporters like Bruce Willis are waking up to the truth of the corruption that's happening in society and are overcoming the programming which we're all being inculcated with on a daily basis to accept this type of corruption as just part of business in Washington. There's nothing we can do about it. Don't even try. For those who think there is no information presented today worth investigating, I say good luck to you, and I hope you enjoy your future. For those who do find the information presented in today's episode useful, I say do the research for yourself, and when you decide that this information is in fact correct, please start getting the word out to other people. We have to become the media in this day and age, and thanks to the internet, we are able to do that. There's been a lot of information presented today about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. But perhaps it would help to put this information in perspective by realizing exactly what was lost on that day. I'd like to end today's episode with an audio clip of a speech that John F. Kennedy gave in 1961 in front of the American Newspaper Publishers Association. I'd like to remind my listeners that all of the links to all of the documentation backing up all of the information in each and every one of the episodes of the Corbett Report can be found on my website, corbettreport.com. Simply click on the Episodes tab and you'll be able to find links to the documentation sorted by time index for all of the episodes. Thank you for tuning in once again to the Corbett Report. Join me again next week for another episode. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, 
scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. No president should fear public scrutiny of his program, for from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I am not asking your newspapers to support an administration, but I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people. For I have complete confidence in the response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. I not only could not stifle controversy among your readers, I welcome it. This administration intends to be candid about its errors. For as a wise man once said, an error doesn't become a mistake until you refuse to correct it. We intend to accept full responsibility for our errors, and we expect you to point them out when we miss them. Without debate, without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed, and no republic can survive. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Sola decreed it a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. And that is why our press was protected by the First Amendment, the only business in America specifically protected by the Constitution, not primarily to amuse and entertain, not to emphasize the trivial and the sentimental, not to simply give the public what it wants, but to inform, to arouse, to reflect, to state our dangers and our opportunities, to indicate our crises and our choices, to lead, mold, educate, and sometimes even anger public opinion. This means greater coverage and analysis of international news, for it is no longer far away and foreign, but close at hand and local. It means greater attention to improved understanding of the news, as well as improved transmission. And it means, finally, that government at all levels must meet its obligation to provide you with the fullest possible information outside the narrowest limits of national security. And so it is to the printing press, to the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. When I was just a little fool, my mama sent me off to a place called school. I liked the part about taking a nap, it seemed everything else was a load of crap, no fooling. Taught us George Washington chopped down a cherry tree so we could all have freedom, justice, and liberty. Did I mention Columbus discovered America? Well, I went off to college, and believe it or not, the harder I studied, the dumber I got. Taught us we was all geniuses, folks back home was asses, and elites like us ought to rule the masses. Some schooling. Had to drop out, though. Just couldn't seem to get my shoulders inside my asshole. Well, I got slapped in the face. No, it couldn't have been ruder by a friend with a film by a guy named Zapruder showed Kennedy's brains getting blowed out the back. Seems the Warren Commission was hooked on crack.
and the FBNI, and all the TV and radio and every newspaper on God's green earth. Well, the day JFK got blown away, old George Bush was in the CIA, and though E. Howard Hunt might have held the gun, George Bush Sr. was surely the one that said, do it. Told him again during Watergate, do it. Sold that slogan to Nike. Forty years later, I'm preaching away. Seems my head's still out in the light of day, but people are still crying, Kennedys are still dying, and the TV and the papers and the teachers still lying. Seems it's still pretty dark out in the middle of the day, even if you don't have your head shoved up three miles up your asshole.